Sports Ethos New York Knicks podcast with Andre Gallagher. Hope you guys are about to have a good holiday. Nice long weekend. Thanksgiving. Enjoy yourself. I do want to take a second to see where things are after 18 games of the season. The sky's been falling for the Knicks. Guys have been clowning Knicks on TV, national television. They're a bad team. They're terrible. Sad times. Nick Twitterverse is a mess. Disaster. Let's just look at these standings and see how bad it really is. The Celtics, who the Knicks played, 13-4 and atop of the conference. The Bucks, who the Knicks played, are second, 12-4. and The Cavs, on a three-game win streak, if you listen to the last show, we were clowning the Cavs a little bit for just being one game over the Knicks in the standings, but three-game win streak, they're back on, on the winning side of things. They're 11-6, third in the conference. The Pacers, a shocker. A team people thought was going to tank. They're one of the high-scoring teams in the league. They're sitting at 10-6. and six. Give Carlisle credit. Give the Pacers credit. The Wizards, another team people thought were going to be at the bottom of the standings. I didn't think they were going to be that bad. They're pretty much right around. Uh, actually, you know what? Give them credit. They're sitting at 10 and 7. They're 10 and 7. They're sitting at fifth in the conference. They weren't supposed to be there. They're supposed to be playing for the play in. There's only 18 games in. Could change. But give them credit. The Hawks, sixth seed, a team that's supposed to be sitting up there, one of the better teams in the conference. Supposedly, once they got DeJounte, they had a little bit of a slow start. Beat the Knicks, went on a little bit of a run. The Raptors got bit by the injury bug a little bit, sitting at the seventh seed, nine and eight. What? What? Wait, what? The Knicks? What? Are the Knicks sitting as the eighth seed at nine and nine? The New York Knicks? Wait, 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 wait. Not the New York Knicks. At I thought everything was was garbage. I thought the sky was falling. I thought the scene was trash. But it, it turns out that at nine and nine, they're sitting as the eighth seed in the conference in the playing tournament. As things stand, if the playoffs were as they were, they would be the last seed. This is a team that doesn't have a superstar. This is a team that's not supposed to be as talented as 99% of the league. Yet, they're sitting at 99 as the 8th seed. Richard Jefferson was on a national broadcast clowning the Knicks, saying they didn't beat anybody but bottom dwellers. Well, half the league, actually, 80% of the league are bottom dwellers. So you're pretty much playing bottom dwellers most nights. Everyone is. But the Knicks have played, I believe it was nine of the top 16 teams in the league so far. So half their schedule, the top half of the league. So yeah, they might have beaten some quote unquote bottom dwellers, but those losses aren't two bottom dwellers. OKC being the worst of their losses, but OKC ain't no punk. As you should know by now. 
looking looking at this West Coast road trip that they're coming home from, I think we talked about it, right? And we said that two and three would be like best case scenario. I actually, I actually included the Portland game and the Memphis game in an extended look at their schedule, assuming that they might be able to win one of those games, I believe. I don't even remember what I said. No one expected this team to go into Utah and win that game. It can't be a situation where whenever the Knicks get their doors blown off or they get beat by someone, the sky is falling, and then when they beat a good team, it doesn't count for some reason, or we just forget it even happened. That was a good win in Utah. Give them credit. Then they went into Denver. No Joker, no Aaron Gordon. They get the win. But guess what? Denver just beat Dallas without those guys. And Jamal Murray didn't even play. Didn't even play. And Denver, I'm sorry, Dallas, by the way, is sitting at 9-7. and seven. You don't really hear about who they're playing and who they're not playing, bottom dwellers. You don't really hear about any of that. Or the fact that in a weak conference, there are only two games in the loss column ahead of the Knicks who are supposed to be so bad and terrible and don't have a superstar and don't have a future, blah, 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 blah. There's no conversation really about Dallas. There's nobody making jokes about them. And the reason why I make this point is because there's just no perspective in the coverage and it's annoying. It's annoying. And I, I gotta feel like most Knicks fans are thinking the same. This is why Richard Jefferson is hated by the Knicks, Knicks fans is because he sits around clowning the Knicks and nobody else is clowned like that. And I understand the Knicks are real easy to make fun of, but look at the league. They're sitting at nine and nine. And I talked about this before the season even started. This is the ceiling for this team. So do not watch every game like it's the end of the world. A referendum on who should be fired. A replaying of all the mistakes over the last 20 years. It's just silly. It's silly. Get rid of Dolan. They're 500. They were supposed to be 500. They knew it as well as you. They want to change it. They may not be able to change it. You can sit around and criticize them when trade season starts and it comes and goes and they don't make any moves. Or the offseason comes and they don't make any moves. Criticize them if they don't actually finish 500 and they don't actually finish competing for the play-in or in the play-in. Not competing for playing, but in the playing. They should be in the playing. That's when you criticize them. You cannot, after every time they lose, start talking about how they should have traded for Donovan Mitchell in the offseason. It is ridiculous. How they should have traded this, uh, traded this guy, drafted this guy. Every game, what do you want? What are you here for? You knew what this team was coming into the season. You knew they were a 500 team. This is what a 500 team looks like. What you should be focusing on, and there's plenty of criticism on this, and there's plenty you can look at on this, is how the players are playing. The players who are going to be here. And the players that you don't want here, how are they playing? Because you need to get rid of them. They need to play well for you to get rid of them. And how Tibbs is coaching. What he's doing. Is he making changes? Is he getting better or worse? That's a useful conversation, not... 
Every time they get blown out, what are the Knicks doing? They have no plan. Stop it. It is dumb and ridiculous. They're 9-9. Nine and nine. And the hits keep on coming. They're coming back home. They got to play Portland and Memphis. No Dame Lillard. That's a winnable game, but Portland's one of the best teams in the conference. They're not, they're not chopped liver, even without Dame Lillard. But that's the game they need to win. If they don't win it, criticize them. Don't start talking about Donovan Mitchell trades in the summer. It's dumb. It's not the conversation any other team is having when they win one, lose one, win two, win, lose two. No other team is having that conversation. What is the conversation in Dallas right now when they're sitting at 9-7 and seven and they want to win a championship? I hope they're talking about how they should have kept Jalen Brunson. Because as many flowers as Jalen Brunson is getting, it's not enough, if you ask me, with the amount of people who criticize the Knicks for bringing this guy in here. Who's been awesome. What about the fact that Utah is sitting, sitting at the top of the conference? A team that nobody thought was even supposed to be there. Even competing for the playoffs. And there's a bunch of teams in that conference that are supposed to be up there and aren't. Have that conversation. Don't have the conversation about a team that's supposed to be 500 and they are. And you're still finding a way to act like they're one of the worst teams in the league. And sometimes they look that way. But perspective. They're not. They're sitting in the middle of the pack pretty much in every category. And they have room for improvement. They could not play much worse than they have. As a Knicks fan, you can't be happy when they go to Golden State on national television and get their doors blown off, and it seems like they weren't competitive throughout the entire game. You can't be happy. I I understand it. If you're a Knicks fan, you don't even want the Knicks to play on national television. What's the point? These guys play with stage fright, or they're trying to prove something. It's just ridiculous. It really is. And you look at the box score of the game, and you don't really think and I'm going to pick on him. You don't really think that Julius Randle had a terrible game. You look at it and you say 7 of 15, 3 of 7 from 3, awesome. 3 of 4 from the line, great. Only 4 trips to the line, but whatever. Sometimes he doesn't get the calls, but we, we're going to get into this. 7 rebounds, only 2 assists. Mm-hmm. 4 turnovers. Mm-hmm. 20 points. Oh, you know, it's not. he did his job. Minus 17. Minus 17. And if you're watching Julius Randle, you understand the problem. If you're really watching him, and I know he has some sycophant fans out there who can't see anything wrong with the way he plays, watch him play and you will be astounded how often he is just watching on defense. He has courtside seats to every Nick game. And he's getting paid. $20 $20 million a year plus to watch him. I have never seen a front court player allow people to attack the rim in front of them more in my life. Never. That minus 17 was by far the worst on the team. By far. And that's with sick-ass R.J. Barrett out there shooting up the, shooting up the storm. 6-19 six, six R.J. Barrett was in his game. And I understand there's a narrative that's out there with R.J. Barrett that is well-deserved because this is very bad timing for him to be sick and to be this aggressive offensively. If you want to be sick, okay, then you need to be a passer. You need to be John Stockton out there. 
Okay? Don't be sick and go in 6 and 19. And that was good for him. 6 and 19 is good for RJ Barrett. One and six from three. At least he made one. That is the best he's played all week. Okay? But RJ Barrett, who has routinely started seasons off slow and picked it up in the second half of the season, started this season off slow and quietly played a few good games in there before he got sick and was able to, and of course, the narrative about him is just going to explode because you can't look at the numbers and determine, okay, he had a few bad games to start the season, but he rounded into shape. You can't look at it and make an argument with a handful of games of him playing well. He got sick, he was played terrible, and he was aggressive with his terribleness. And even in this game, he was only a minus 10 to Julius Randle's minus 17. Even in this game, both of them are a whole mess out there on the floor. Defensively, hustle-wise, rebounds, uh, deflections, assists, not enough. Not enough good passes, not enough good basketball play. And to be frank, RJ has been worse than Randall. It's just that Randall is so ostentatious with his terrible play. This is right in front of your face. You don't see RJ holding the ball, dominating the ball for five seconds before he takes a terrible shot. He'll just catch it and take a terrible shot. Not, not Julius. He'll catch it and wait a while and then take it, making him look really silly. But not in this game. He put up good numbers. It's just that he's not making winning plays even when he's playing well sometimes. And we talked about this last episode. He goes through ebbs and flows. He'll start a game being really aggressive, shooting the ball, make or miss. He might have even made a couple, but it's bad offense and it's bad mojo for your team to watch you take a bad shot for no reason. And then they got to chop back on defense. And on defense, you're always slow to make a play. Always slow to make a play. Let me give you a stat to illustrate the point here. Contested two-point shots. Contested two-point shots. I want you to think about how many minutes Julius Randle plays and understand that he has 53 contested two-point shots in 18 games. 53. Now, you might be doing math in your head, trying to determine whether or not that makes sense. Isaiah Hartenstein has 113. Now, you say, well, he plays center. He's got to defend the rim. Of course, he has more. Uh, why not? Right? Mitchell Robinson, who's been out for a couple of weeks, has 64. Oh, of course. He's been he's the center. When, before he got injured, he'd have numbers like Hartenstein. Randall had 53. Next to Randall, two less at 51 is Emmanuel Quickly. It is Emmanuel Quickly. Now, listen. Emmanuel quickly has been one of the Knicks' best defensive players by their numbers. He has been their best defensive player. So, of course, he's going to contest a lot of shots because that's what defensive players do, right? But he does not play the minutes that Julius Randle plays, nor does he play in the front court. So, if Isaiah Hardenstein and Mitchell Robinson lead the team in two-point contested shots because they're contesting at the rim... Julius Randle, being the power forward who eats up the bulk of the minutes on the front line, 
should be third, but should be should not be only two more than I than than uh, Emmanuel quickly. That's a credit to Emmanuel quickly, but it's what Julius. And if you're watching, you know exactly what I'm talking about. No one watches layups more than Julius Randle. Nobody. He's great at it. He's great at it. You want more? I got more for you. Let's talk about deflections. All right? Leading the team in deflections, Emmanuel quickly. Once again, give him credit. Behind him, Jalen Brunson. Give him credit. Cam Reddish, I think you might know that just by watching the games. Isaiah Hartenstein is fourth in deflections with 25. Reddish at 28. Brunson with 37. Quickly with 38. Behind Hartenstein is Randall with 25. So in more minutes, he has matched Hartenstein. Hartenstein, who right now at this second, in the last two games, is splitting time with two other centers at his position. And Randall is tied with him in deflections. Wake up! Here's another one for you. Here's another one for you. Just, just in case I haven't made my argument. Okay? Shots within five feet defensively. There have been 337 attempts on Julius Randle. Opponents are shooting 66%. 66%. Julius Randle is not stopping anyone at the front of the rim. He's there and he doesn't do it. He doesn't put a hand up. He doesn't contest it at all. He just watches and is maddening. You saw Obi Toppin do that. Obi Toppin is a very impressionable player. God bless his soul. He was told he needs to up his rebounding. So what have you seen? You've seen him attacking the boards. You've seen him not running out as much. And you saw a play like you saw in the game in OKC where there was a drive from the weak side to the basket and he had someone under the rim. He was boxing him out, keeping him from getting a drop-off pass or the offensive rebound, but he let the guy make the layup. Come on, Obi. He was hoping that the trailing defender was going to make a play, but he had to have he had to have the instincts there to know that that wasn't going to be the case. You contest that, and you hope somebody has your back, or you just contest cognizant of the fact that that drop off pass might happen. You don't just watch it. But the difference between what Obi was doing there and what Randall does is that he was actually trying to do something—the wrong thing potentially—but he was trying to do something. Julius Randall literally stands there and watches people make layups on him. And ones, he just watches. You see the guy come, he's right in front of the rim. Lou Dort, a thousand times. Lou Dort, taking people to the basket. Julius Randle standing there, just letting him finish. Attack him, man. You're an athletic guy. Attack him. Get yourself in position. Get some fouls. If anything. You're there, try. And he doesn't. And he doesn't. And it's maddening. And it's one of the main reasons why Nick fans turn on him so quickly. They were excited to see him play with fire and desire in that Utah game. But that's what they need to see every game. But instead, you see this sour, sometimes I'm playing, sometimes I'm not type of attitude, getting mad over silly things. Can you just rotate over and take a charge or jump and contest? Jump straight up. When was the last time you seen Julius Randle jump straight up in the air on the drive to the basket? With hands straight up in the air. Or even hands coming down and getting called for a foul. Anything close to it. You don't see it. You don't see it. 
And the team needs that. And for somebody who's a good rebounder, he allows rebounds to bounce around over his head all the time. He'll stand in front of the rim. If the rebound is there, he'll fight for it if you're grabbing it with them. But he's not going to box you out. People are not going – people can crash the boards behind him, swoop in and grab that board a thousand times. If he doesn't know they're there, he'll get in the rebound. If he knows they're there, he might put a body on them. He might not. He just waits for the ball to fall into his hands. It is maddening. These are the things that are keeping the Knicks from being better and more consistent. It's not all of the things that you're talking about. It's these things that can change overnight. The Knicks are third to last in defensive rebounding percentage. Third to last. With a big man in the paint all the time. And I understand Mitchell's hurt, but Mitchell's a better offensive rebounder than he's a defensive rebounder. About around the same in terms of his averages when he's actually healthy. And right now he's not. So all you Mitchell haters out there, just give him a break, all right? He hurt his knee. Give him a second. But they're third to last in defensive rebounding percentage. It is one of the biggest reasons why they're not a more consistent team. Teams are getting those boards on them consistently. They're sixth to last in second chance points. Opponent second chance points. They're getting stops. And then too often, the other team is crashing the boards. And I told you, the book is out on the Knicks on a few things, and this is one of them. They know to crash the boards on the Knicks. They can get offensive rebounds. Most teams in the league don't even compete for rebounds, offensive rebounds. They just trot back on the def- on defense. Not against the Knicks. You get, you're seeing guards and small forwards crashing all the time. All the time. They're 25th in fast break points, opponents' fast break points. Not getting back on defense, once again, something that's simple to do. You take bad shots, you're going to have bad floor balance. That's number one. Let's start with that. If you're not driving to the basket consistently and putting the ball in the front of the rim, the other team is going to get those long rebounds and take off. The same thing that you don't do because you don't secure long rebounds. You're giving up, the, one of, you're giving up a ton of three-point shots. One of the worst teams, if you want to see it that way, one of the worst teams in the league and giving up three-point shooting, uh, three-point attempts. That's not really the way to phrase that. It's not necessarily a bad thing to give up a lot of threes. It's a bad thing to give up a lot of uncontested threes. But if you're giving up a lot of threes, it's going to be a ton of long rebounds, and you're not securing them because you're not hustling to them. We all know that Quickly's excellent at that. Everybody needs to be. You don't see enough of that from RJ. You don't see RJ under the basket fighting for inside position and a ball bouncing over his head, do you? You just see him just kind of being around and not getting a rebound. He's got to be better at it. You see Brunson getting a good bit of rebounds, so he doesn't get his as many as quickly, I would say, without even looking at the stats. But he, but no shade to Brunson. He's out there hustling, and you know he is. You got to see it from these other positions. You got to see it from Randall. If you're going to be under the rim, are you boxing people out, or are you just standing there? And half the time, he's just standing there. And he's not chasing those rebounds down when they bounce over his head. They could bounce three feet over his head. He's not going to get it. This is why the team is losing. Well, not losing, but looks like they're losing <laughs> half the time. This is why they can't stay in these games against good teams, and some of these good teams. Again, let's not let's not too much hyperbole in these statements because it's not really 100% true. They don't get blown out every night by good teams, but it seems that way. Because you saw that against Golden State. Well, Golden State, even though they only won by 10, it never felt like they were out of that game. It felt like they were coasting the whole time. And you just... 
don't understand how guys just keep swooping in, tipping the ball away, getting these offensive rebounds. Where is everybody? Find a body and box somebody out. Be aggressive on these boards. And giving up these fast break points, that's not just about trotting back on defense. That's about you taking bad shots. They kick the ball out to you, cool, take the shot. You have all this arbitrary ball movement on the Knicks where it's just about passing the ball around just to get the ball to somebody so they can isolate. And it pisses me off. They miss cutters all the time. They miss Obi all the time. They're conditioning Obi to not even expect the ball when he cuts and he's open. And the same thing. Hardenstein is always missed on the rolls to the basket. He actually knows how to roll to the basket, unlike Mitchell, who struggles with that. That's something that quickly is not strong at, by the way, because he can't make the weak side corner pass. So they'll crowd the paint when he comes off those screens. Nobody on the Knicks can make the weak side corner pass. I'm convinced that's why they always sink in from the weak side corner on defense, thinking nobody can pass, make that pass. Because nobody in practice can do it. Brunson can't do it. Nobody makes that pass on the Knicks. Guys sink in to cut the roller off, and nobody can make that pass on the weak side corner. And on defense, they always give that shot up because they think the other team can't do it. You have no reason to sink. When there's somebody in the lane, like there was a situation last night where Mitchell was in a defensive stance in the middle of the lane, and Randall was two feet behind him with a foot in the paint with a man in the corner. And it's not even, see, here's the thing. When somebody's doing the screen in the middle of the floor, just because they dribble with their right hand does not mean you can sink in weak side the way you would if somebody was all the way on the other side of the court. He's closer to the middle. That's an easy pass. When you have nobody in the paint, I understand you have a decision to make. But when there's, when there's someone in the middle of the paint, you have to have some recognition. You have to understand that the paint is covered. You don't need to have a foot in the paint, especially when people shoot 66% when you are in front of them, contesting them, quote-unquote. Get to the shooter. Stay with the shooter, please. Just ridiculous. He's not the only one, by the way. Let me just be clear. But it was egregious on a night where he had several head-scratching defensive moments, including a back cut on an inbounds. And I understand that Giddy is elite, elite at inbound, inbounds assists. This was a baseline inbounds. You had Jalen Brunson covering a 6'8 Giddy. That's fine, it's inbounds. I'm not going to nitpick. Brunson was guarding the basket side. It was under the basket for the most part, a little bit to the side of the backboard. There was a cutter. Randall was standing... In the path of the cutter, about two feet to the two, the cutter's right with his own man. The cutter ran between Brunson and Randall. Randall didn't even know he was running by him until the guy caught it and made a layup. Brunson tried to reach and get the pass. He didn't get it, but Randall should have been there. He's guarding his own man. He got his hand on his chest. You don't see a cutter running by you? Are you blind? That would explain so much if he was. And if it seems like I'm picking on Randall, I am. I did, I did not like his demeanor last night. Did not like his attitude. CP, the franchise, shout out to him and his great show, his podcast. He made a comment, three and two on the, on the road trip. You can't sit around complaining about body language in a win. Perspective is, is severely lacking in Nick fandom, for sure, and media coverage. So I respect that 100%. But you saw this last year, and it's a bad sign. And I told you, it's about how the players are playing. That's more important than anything else. You want to win, of course. But how the players are playing, that's what's going to 
propel this franchise to where they want to go, whether that means making trades or developing young guys, how they're playing and what they're doing on the court, it matters. And for a guy who has no trade market right now in Randall, seeing him have such bad habits, it's disheartening. And when you know a two-hour meeting could change the Knicks' fortunes with him on the court immensely, you don't even have to do anything else. You don't have to even make a trade to make Randall infinitely better than than what he is right now. He could be the same player offensively, have the same level of inefficiency, and just take different shots and hustle on defense, and the Knicks would be head and shoulders better than they are right now. Because they're 500 as it is, and you're seeing those bad habits more than you're not. And that's not to mention RJ. And again, a lot of the analysis in RJ last this past week, I said it earlier, it's ignoring the fact that he was sick. I just don't like the fact that he was playing so aggressively while he was sick. But beyond his illness, his defensive effort is just not good enough. He's not applying pressure at all to the opposition. He has a big body, but they're not feeling it. They're coasting by him every single time. He needs to put a body on people the way Grimes does. And you saw Grimes last night. Perfect segue into what he brought to the team. You saw a little bit of it in the Phoenix game that they lost. Again, another game where the Knicks seemed like they were never going to win. Even though the game was close, halftime, third quarter, it just didn't seem like they were going to pull it off. It really didn't. But you saw Grimes attacking closeouts, something that Knicks don't do. You see RJ do it a little bit. Other than that, Julius Randle doesn't do it. He likes to he likes to square the closeout out and jazz like a jab seven million times and shoot the ball over them. Doesn't attack the closeout and get downhill. RJ does it a little bit more, to be fair. Grimes, he does it and he's quick. The dribble is low to the ground, it's concise, it's powerful. He gets where he needs to go. And it begs the question: did he just get healthy? All of a sudden, after the Golden State game, because Cam got hurt, all of a sudden he's healthy. Now he gets to be in rotation. He got healthy quick because he looked spry out there. Now he talked about it. He talked about in the Phoenix game getting a little winded after a while. But in this game, he felt a little bit more comfortable out there. He wasn't nearly as spry in the second half of the OKC game as he was earlier. But he did a marvelous job on SGA. He got burned on some tight calls and some fouls, just being physical with him. And that's, that's what you need to do. You can't just let these guys glide and coast by you. It's ridiculous watching that. That's why RJ's net rating, defensive rating, Julius Randle has a 118 defensive rating right now. Juxtapose that with Quickly, who's at like 101. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. And Julius is not necessarily being attacked directly on offense he's just he's just not posing any kind of resistance to anyone near him that's what's annoying that's what's annoying but Grimes providing defense from a position that the Knicks needed point of attack guards slashers 
Without Cam, he was desperately needed. But a lot of the questions as to why Grimes wasn't in the rotation, it's a legitimate question. I saw Grimes say that it was hard to simulate game speed and practice. It gave me the impression that they just didn't feel like he was ready in shape-wise. But as soon as Cam gets hurt, all of a sudden he's ready. He's ready to go. I don't want to hear. I know that Tibbs said he wanted to keep the rotation around nine guys. And part of that was because I believe the players complained. I think Rose complained. I think quickly, probably even Cam, none of those guys were comfortable with the amount of minutes that they were getting. Couldn't get into a flow. And you heard a lot of that talk in the post game. You've seen it with Cam. You've seen it with quickly. His answer to that was to drop to a nine-man rotation, but to keep Grimes out of it, that's a tough decision. That's that's questionable. That's questionable, for sure. I would argue, and I get it, all of these guys play similar positions. You have one backup power forward, and it's Obi. I would play Cam, if he was healthy, when he was healthy and Grimes was healthy at the same time for those few games. I would have played Cam and or RJ at some power forward minutes. And depending on the matchup, it maybe had OB at the five or depending on the matchup, especially when you have like something like OKC. And again, I'm using a scenario when Cam was healthy, but let's say OKC, they had Mascala in the game. You know, he's going to be outside shooting threes. A matchup like that, you can have OB in the game at center. Phoenix, Aiton's down low, uh, Biombo, eh, you can't. Golden State, they play Draymond Green at center sometimes. Draymond's going to use and abuse OB a little bit, but I'm willing to try that. Just to get those guys in the game a little bit. Right now, the Knicks are playing three centers with Sims and Hardenstein and a healthy Robinson. If you're going to be outside the box, be outside the box. Let's steal some of Randall's minutes because Randall's minutes aren't always good minutes. But maybe I'm talking crazy. I get it. I get it. But I do understand that there is a conundrum at the guard position. And that brings me to this last thing. Three and two on a road trip. Let's just talk about it. That's a successful road trip. They have Portland at home. They have Memphis coming up. No Dame Lillard. They need to. Ja is back. That's going to be a tough game. They're beatable, though. They need to win at least one of these games. They can't lose these two games. Not with no Dame. They can't. They can't. I don't care what we're talking about. Okay? With Grimes back and maybe a healthy Cam, maybe you don't. A little bit more defensive pressure. But this brings me to a very controversial conversation. IQ is coming up in trade talks. You've heard me mention mention him juxtaposed with Randall not even purposely throughout the entire show because his defense is the polar opposite of Randall's. His effect on the court is the polar polar opposite of Randall's. The Knicks are a far better team when IQ is playing. It's not even close. So the Knicks are trading or thinking about trading IQ and Nick verse, Nick Twitter verse is ablaze. And it's a conversation that needs to be had. Okay, IQ's extension is coming up. Are you going to pay IQ when you don't even have a superstar on the roster yet? There's an argument to be made that 
if IQ was paid like his value, it would be easier to trade him. When guys aren't paid to their value, it's hard to trade them because you're trying to get equal value, but you have to match contracts. So you're trying to get a big contract player, but you're including guys that, in theory, have more value than their contracts say or their contracts would dictate. So that means you have to add more players and more value to the trade to get the guy you want. That was part of the problem with the Donovan Mitchell trade. There was a lot of talk that Ainge didn't even value the Nick players they had to put in the trade, but they had to put a bunch of them in the trade to make the contracts add up because there was no interest in Randall. So there's an argument to be made that paying IQ makes him more tradable if you pay him to his value, but Fournier at $18 million, that's what a shooter like Fournier gets paid, but yet the Knicks can't trade him. So it's an interesting conundrum. You go around a league and you look at the shooters that are paid around the money that Fournier is making, and none of those contracts are tradable contracts. But that's apparently the value for a guy who's a shooter. How does that work? I'm not disputing it. It's a fact. But teams have to be a little bit more judicious about giving money to guys because that's their value when nobody really wants to have that value in their roster at that number. And I'm afraid that's what might that's what might happen to IQ if the Knicks pay him. And I think the Knicks might be quietly afraid of that too. As good as IQ is, he is a positive force on a 500 team playing minutes in a crowded backcourt with the point guard of the future already on the team and it's not him. So you're talking about a guy who's a third guard at best on the Knicks. Because assuming RJ can't go anywhere, even if you want him to, depending on who you are, who's listening, you might want him gone. But either way, he's not going anywhere right now. So he's on a team. Grimes right now is not going anywhere. There were reports that he was virtually untradeable. I'm sure he could go in a big enough deal, but it would take a big enough deal. So you're talking about RJ, small forward, shooting guard, you're talking about Grimes. You're talking about Brunson. IQ is at best the third guard for the foreseeable future. So do you keep that guy, pay him his value, whatever that might be. I think it might be $15 million. Some people have seen $18 million. To be the third guard on a team that doesn't even have that superstar yet. You're going to clog up your your salary cap with your third guard. He can't be the starting shooting guard. The Knicks need a slash. They need a slashing shooting guard. They need what Cam Reddish thinks he is as shooting guard. That's not IQ. But IQ can definitely and should be the third guard playing 30 minutes a game. However, can you pay that guy that? And if you're a 500 team with IQ playing this much, I mean, do you keep him so that you can keep being 500? Why are you keeping him if there's value to be had? My issue, however, would be the likely trade candidate from all reports is Dallas. Fred Katz reported it for The Athletic. And they're talking about a late first round draft pick probably with protections. You're talking about probably one of the top teams in the league. I mean, at the very least, one of the top 10 teams in the league. So 
you're looking at a mid first round draft pick at best. I'm not saying it's a low value pick, but it's at the highest value pick in the world. And that's right around where you drafted quickly. I think a few picks less than that. So you're going to be getting a pick basically right around the place that you drafted quickly. And quickly is a solid player. The reason why Dallas is willing to trade that pick for quickly is because they'd rather have the player who has shown that value as opposed to the pick, which is a question mark. So the question is, well, why would the Knicks want that question mark? I think the Knicks just have bigger plans and IQ is collateral damage. He's not a player that's going to be starting for them. He's not a player that's going to be the point guard or the shooting guard. He's going to be a bench player, a valuable, a valuable one, but they're not even close to being where they want to be to keep IQ when they haven't had their superstars. They want to get two superstars, according to Fred Katz, to have him nailed to your roster, making $15, $18 million a year. I still think that might be high. You're stuck with, so far, and obviously getting rid of Randall and Fournier is a big part of their future. But to have guys locked in, it's not going to stop at IQ. You have Cam, you have Obi. Decisions have to be made. You can't sign all of these guys to $10, $15 million, $15, $18 million. They're not good enough right now. And you're not going to really know how good they are unless they play more minutes. And a lot of people will debate that and dispute that. I believe the Knicks think that these guys have to play more minutes get into a flow, actually get some meaningful possessions under their belt to really know what these guys have. They have Randall blocking OBs, a bunch of people, Cam, Grimes, RJ, IQ, Derek Rose, who are all kind of getting in each other's way. But IQ being a point guard slash shooting guard, his spot is locked because he can't play his primary position because of Brunson. And he's not going to play starting shooting guard because that's not what the Knicks need. That's probably where the superstar that they're looking for is going to be playing. Assuming RJ is part of this. I'm not saying he should be, but I'm assuming that they can't do anything with RJ. And that could be true for for Randall too, but I think they already know they're going to have to attach some draft picks to Randall. I don't think they want to do that with RJ. So IQ becomes a little bit expendable because what he does is not as valuable to the Knicks as you fans think because he's not going to be the key to them building a champion. He might be a useful piece to a team that's competing for a championship right now before a team that's so far away from it as the Knicks. He's not that piece. So you can't pay him and keep him and keep him as a building block and then do the same thing with Obi and Cam and Grimes when his contract is up because you want to hold on to your guys, but collectively they don't make you the champion you want them to be. And collectively they're just going to clog your salary cap so you can't. it'll make it harder for you to acquire the guys that you want to acquire. And I understand that the Knicks acquiring these guys is pie in the sky, but you can't have it both ways. If you want to criticize the Knicks for ha- not having those superstars and not having that foundation – then you also have to understand that that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to acquire it. So you don't then make fun of them for trying to acquire it. That's that's silly. It's stupid. This is what they're trying to do. Now, my issue, that, my issue though, is they need to get rid of Rose. I don't think Rose is playing as poorly as some people do. 
the numbers might not reflect it. I think he's instant offense. He had a few bad games that made him look made made his numbers look a little poor. He doesn't get that many shots, doesn't get that many minutes. I heard that there was some talk about Rose. I think Sham reported it was mentioned in the Fred Katz article that Sham reported there was some interest in Rose. Listen, I don't care what you get for Rose, frankly. I have no hate for Rose. I think Rose gave us a lot. I just think the value for Rose was in the first year that he got here, and it was last year when he got hurt, so it didn't matter. They needed him last year. They needed him the year before. They don't need him now because they have Brunson. They didn't have a guy who can do what Rose does, which is attack the rim, five feet, efficient, keep pressure on defenses. They didn't have that the last two years. Now they do. Now, if you trade IQ, obviously Rose gets more minutes, but do you want to do it that way? Rose is coming towards the end of his career. He's probably going to want to leave and compete for a championship at some point. Do you roll the dice as Rose is your backup point guard and McBride as insurance? Or would you rather have IQ? IQ might want more money than Rose. Rose is on a manageable contract right now. IQ might want more money and more guaranteed years, whereas Rose will be manageable and probably will work with you and have a contract that'll be easier and, and more flexible. So maybe they're thinking... Along those lines, maybe they're thinking that McBride can do a lot of things that IQ can do. You haven't seen IQ, I mean, you haven't seen McBride do nearly as much offensively as IQ has shown flashes of doing. But I do believe McBride has a little bit more offense to him than we've seen. If he had gotten more minutes, if he gets into a flow, I think McBride is better offensively than we've seen. At the very least, he can give you what IQ is giving you offensively, which is not much on most nights, to be frank. So maybe they see McBride as someone who can have the same effect on the court as IQ is having defensively, because it's mostly defensively and it's mostly in his ball movement and body movement. McBride does a lot of those things. So maybe they think McBride is that guy. If we can move IQ, McBride can slide right in. OKC has been collecting first-round draft picks for years. I have, and I'm, I'm, a Nick, I'm a Nick fan. I'm an NBA fan. I have never heard about the protections on OKC's picks outside of trade day. Trade day, they list the protections. But when everyone talks about OKC and all their assets, I've never heard anyone talk about how valuable they were based on their protections and what's going to convey and what's not. I never heard it. Never, ever, ever, ever. As soon as the Knicks get a bunch of first-round draft picks, there's a whole lot of talk about how worthless some of these draft picks are, which is an overstatement. But still, it doesn't make it any less true. But of course, it becomes a point of conversation when the Knicks get the picks. Like that, our first team to ever have a bunch of protected picks. I think it's overstating. We'll go over the picks maybe next episode. I do think, however, getting basically turning IQ back into the pick that he was like it's almost like going back in time and just getting another pick, like he was never here. I do think that's probably not the best message. And maybe it's not the best 
strategy when Rose is tradable. I think the Knicks should probably explore the Rose trade as deeply as possible before they move IQ. And I get it. Everything I said, everything I explained, I get it. But I think that's what they should do and go from there. But we got long this time. Fired up. Long episode. But make sure in the meantime, you follow at Sports Ethos, at Ethos Knicks. Make sure you visit SportsEthos.com. Until next time.